like kept thinking about what we were talking about uh, right beforehand with the like um, the law makes exceptions for itself, right? Oh no! This this the timing of this chapter is just uh, like proves to me that we are in a simulation. As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> like the timing is perfect, and everything that we're talking about is stuff I've seen over the last 24 hours, which is terrifying. Uh, here we are, and talking about the despotic signifier, the the nature of the paranoiac despot, which Trump absolutely is. The, the the edicts of laws that are its own exception, which they absolutely are doing. It's 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 uh it's good to be able to have those examples. I don't know. This is a a teaching classroom. <laughs> but we should be careful here because like we haven't seen the new socius for capitalism yet, and I think that's kind of important because like. Trump's body, I don't think, is the socius. No, maybe not. But absolutely, absolutely grotesque. I can't believe you made me think this with my mind's eye. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have a few handful of people here, which is great. And we're going to go ahead and uh, start continuing our discussion of anti-Oedipus. I might as well just start kicking us off because we're now a few minutes late. We've been laughing about Trump for too long. Um... So, uh, yesterday we left off uh, just under halfway through of uh, Chapter 3, Section 7, The Despotic Imperial Machine. We're going to continue from uh, where I'm at. We're, we're still streaming on YouTube, if you guys want to follow along there. Uh, we also have uh, the PDF up. We are on page 208 of the PDF, uh, and the I believe that's both the Penguin and the Minnesota Press Edition, which is great. Uh, and we are just going to really dive in. I'm not going to do much housekeeping, although I do want to mention that we have a friend of ours, Bill, here. If uh, you guys haven't noticed, Bill is uh, one of our supporting machines. So we just all should say thank you, Bill. Because Bill is making sure that we don't go broke doing this. Uh, so thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Um, with that, though, uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue off, and we're just going to pretend we're just picking up straight away from yesterday. If uh, other people join, we will uh, integrate everyone. One cannot better show how an operation of bi-univocalization organizes itself around a despotic signifier so that a phonetic and alphabetical chain flows from it. Alphabetical writing is not for illiterates, but by illiterates. It goes by way of illiterates, those unconscious workers. The signifier implies a language that overcodes another language, while the other language is completely coded into phonetic elements. And if the unconscious, in fact, includes the topical order of a double inscription, it is not structured like one language, but like two. The signifier does not appear to keep its promise, which is to give us access to a modern and functional understanding of language. The imperialism of the signifier does not take us beyond the question, what does it mean? It is content to bar the question in advance, to render all the answers insufficient by relegating them to the status of a simple signified. It challenges exegesis, exegesis, please, someone, anyone pronounce that for me? Exegesis. Exegesis. Thank you, Kent. In the name of recitation, pure textuality, and superior scientificity. Like the young palace dogs too quick to drink the verse water, 
and who never tire of crying. The signifier, you have not reached the signifier, you are still at a level of the signifieds. The signifier is the only thing that gladdens their hearts, but this master signifier remains what it was in ages past, a transcendent stock that distributes lack to all the elements of the chain, something in common for a common absence, the authority that channels all the breaks flows into one and the same locus of one and the same cleavage, the detached object, the phallus and castration, the bar that delivers over all the depressive subjects to the great paranoiac king. O oh, signifier, terrible archaism of the despot, where they still look for the empty tomb, the dead father, and the mystery of the name. And perhaps that is what incites the anger of certain linguists against Lacan, no less the enthusiasm of his followers, the vigor and the serenity with which Lacan accompanies the signifier back to its source, to its veritable, veritable origin, the despotic age, and erects an infernal machine that welds desire to the law. Because, everything considered, so Lacan thinks, this is indeed the form with, in which the signifier is in agreement with the unconscious, and the form in which it produces effects of the signified in the unconscious. The signifier as the repressing representation and the new displaced represented that it induces, the famous metaphors and metonymy, all of that constitutes the overcoding and deterritorialized despotic machine. Uh, just before we dive in, it's worth noticing, noting for those who are joining and maybe didn't hear yesterday's conversation, we just left off the discussion about how uh, the move from uh, spoken word languages that use pictographs into a fully written word uh, by nature has a lot of things where leveling operations fall back on words and words become actually by serving the signifier, they actually become the master of all of it. Seems like they've, they've been uh, playing a lot of Sassur in this. So with that, I will, I will open up if anyone has a comment on this while I try to gather my thoughts. So the first two sentences strike me as um, rather interesting, right? Because they're, they're opening off this paragraph after discussing how two languages interact so as to demonstrate a kind of a power relation and master-slave relation through language, right? They go right into how biunificalization is organized around a despot signifier. To that point, um, I think it's interesting, at least um, how I'm reading this, that they seem to be suggesting that the alphabet and um, perhaps even formal signification in a sense, particularly that of the written word, uh, is constructed for illiterates, which here seems to be the unconscious, right? So like... This seems to be like, does it, this kind of goes back to the point about the eye seeing but not reading, right? It is, the signs and, and that are being created here, the written language, it's being imposed upon the unconscious, but the unconscious doesn't actually corroborate to it. For me, I actually was surprised that they... When I got to this, so far everything they've done basically has been uh, sort of shitting on Lacan at one point or another, uh, whether through snarky little language or digs or whatever it is. And here they seem to actually say, well, there's, people are upset with Lacan. Lacan's right, however, and it's that however that I'm having trouble. They, they talk um, the anger of certain linguists against Lacan, uh, the vigor and serenity with which Lacan accompanies the signifier back to its source, to its origin, the despotic age. 
Uh, and Lacan talks uh, a great deal, actually, about uh, the signifier going back to this period. Um, yeah, it's worth reading the footnote, actually. Um, Elizabeth Rudinesco's excellent article on the con, where she analyzes the twofold aspect of the analytic signifying chain and the transcendent signifier on which the chain depends. Uh, this is uh, fuck, some of the stuff I don't understand about Lacan, so I apologize in advance. She shows that, in this sense, Lacan's theory should be interpreted less as a linguistic conception of the unconscious than as a critique of linguistics in the name of the unconscious. I'm going to do what I can to find that piece uh, on Libgen. So I think this kind of points to your, um, your point about the however, because they're working with what appears to be Lacan's ideas, but also... Uh, one, how, how somebody's interpreted Lacan's ideas, right? Which effectively seems to be that, um, if, if I'm reading this correctly, it looks like um, to the point I made previously that the unconscious is given language, although it is illiterate, it seems to be that um, they agree with this interpretation of Lacan such that an infernal machine is created that welds desire, desire to the law, right? So it's this way of like, this seems to be the bionivicalization, right? Kind of the, the meshing together of the unconscious with um, language as the law, which, if I remember correctly, um, points to a paralogism. Um, <clears throat> one, of, one of the things where they're talking about, it goes by way of illiterates, those unconscious workers, that part about illiteracy. Uh you know, I, I noticed recently that um, they had found the oldest alphabetical writings, I think, somewhere in the Sinai, as derived from Egyptian. And it turned out that it was a mining community. And what they're hypothesizing uh, in the article is that the uh, the uh, the people who knew uh, hi hieroglyphics um, concocted for the miners these alphabetical notations for them to be able to communicate with each other. And so it's very interesting that uh, the idea is that the alphabet originally came from someone who knew hieroglyphics, but uh, in order to help people who could not understand hieroglyphics, because that took years of study, uh, they concocted this uh, this uh, shorthand that would allow them to communicate with each other. And I just thought that was kind of interesting uh, anthropological e evidence for this idea that, that, that the alphabet was uh, based on illiteracy. Yeah, but I think the illiteracy is that of desiring machines. Um, I actually, I think uh, it's worth us diving a little bit more into the next uh, paragraph because they go deeper into the concept of the signified and the signifier and how they relate. Uh, so I'm going to uh, jump ahead a little bit and uh, keep moving. Um, the despotic signifier has the effect of overcoding the territorial chain. The signified is precisely the effect of the signifier and not what it represents or what it designates. The signified is the sister of the borders and the mother of the interior. 
sister and mother are the concepts that correspond to the great acoustic image, to the voice of the new alliance and direct filiation. Incest is the very operation of overcoating at the two ends of the chain in all the territory ruled by the despot. From the borders to the center, all the debts of alliance are converted into the infinite debt of the new alliance, and all the extended filiations are subsumed by direct filiation. Incest, or the royal trinity, is therefore the whole of the repressing representation insofar as it initiates the overcoating. The system of subordination or signification has replaced the system of connotation. To the extent that graphism is flattened onto the voice, the graphism that not so long ago was inscribed flush with the body, body representation subordinates itself to word representation. Sister and mother are the voices signified. But to the extent that this flattening induces a fictitious voice from on high that no longer expresses itself in the linear flux, the despot himself is the signifier of the voice that, along with the two signified, affects the overcoating of the whole chain. What made incest impossible, namely, that at times we had the appellations, mother-sister, but not the persons or the bodies, while at other times we had the bodies, but the appellations disappeared from view as soon as we broke through the prohibitions they bore, has ceased to exist. Incest has become possible in the wedding of the kinship bodies and family appellations, in the union of the signifier with the signifieds. Okay. I'm going to now say a few things that are declarative, and I'm going to look foolish in retrospect, but I'm going to make sure we can at least get some conversation going here. Um, one of the struggling with on this is understanding where sister mother comes from and who the sister mother is, uh, where we find them inside of the despotic. They very much uh, talk earlier when we're in the primitive or savage times about sister mother being purely a conceptual thing. It's not, it's not so much written. It's not uh, so much the uh, person embodying the thing, but more just a broad concept. And talks about them uh, in terms of sister and mother, mother being uh, affiliation, or being alliances, that I'm, I sell my sister, I see where my mother came from, I came from my mother, where did she come from, affiliation through hereditary, heredity through down to the mythology of where we all came from. The change here is that the despot, first off, is any of that wrong? <laughs> That a, uh, they do mention the uh, the sister as part of the um, the incest taboo earlier. Yes. So there's there's actually two taboos. There's taboo relating to the mother and the taboo relating to the sister. But the the concept of sister is one that is uh, would because we don't have necessarily the signifier. The, the words uh, sister and mother, and they haven't been coded onto, they're coded onto bodies, but they're not uh, overcoded. Uh, incest becomes a thing that itself really isn't possible because we don't see sister is sister all the time. It's not uh, uh, overcoded to the point of that. Whereas once the despot comes in, the despotic signifier comes in and takes the chain of signifiers and overcodes across the board and everything suddenly becomes the thing that is written uh, in the in the words and that last line incest has become possible in the wedding of kinship bodies and family appellations in the union of signifiers with signifieds suddenly incest can become a thing 
because the sisters and mothers and affiliations and alliances all collapse into that single signifier. I'm sure everything I just said is wrong, but please point out why. Well, um, so what I like to do in these kinds of cases is try to find a concrete example. And concrete example, I would think here is the Cyrus myth uh, and the two brothers folktale. And so if, if, you, if, you, if you try to uh, measure what they're saying against the Cyrus myth and, uh, and, and the two brothers folktale, then what you what you see is that um you know uh Isis you know is Osiris's sister and the mother of Horus but Isis also has a sister and and it's it's uh from the relationships between Osiris and that sister that you get the two brothers that kind of like uh, re uh, tell the story of Osiris and Isis again at the folktale level. So anyway, I'm not sure that it fits, but I think that it is kind of like, uh, you know, from Egypt, we only ha- got one myth, which was the Osiris myth, and we only got one folktale. So you know, if it's going to, if it's going to, if this thing is, if this thing they're saying is going to work back in, uh, in terms of West, the Western tradition, it's got to work in relationship to that myth. And so I don't know how, if it works or not, but I think it's worth thinking about. I think to respond um, to Brooks, what you said, um, so when they, where they write, what made incest impossible namely that at times we had the appellations mother-sister, but not the persons or the bodies, while at other times we had the bodies, but the appellations disappeared from view as soon as we broke through the prohibitions they bore, it ceased to exist. So this kind of takes us back to where they start out with, like, the lines didn't blur between the filiative and the alliant. There was a way of keeping them separate, even if you had to deal with the relativity of, like, you know, your your uh your sister right and and the affiliation that goes with that and your mother and the affiliation that goes with that even if you're going to do economic and political stuff with them right it's kind of easy to see the transition there but what seems to happen with the introduction of writing and with this form of signification where the the bayun of the the bayunivicality is now um you know the, the problematic has changed there so much so that I think they they send the preceding paragraphs right like the signified becomes the sign of a sign um, well, I can look for the quote uh, and I'll put it in the chat but it seems to be that with the despot and the lines blurring and this despot signifying chain coming together you no longer have the the more clear separation right the sister and mother are, are um, no longer that that unique sort of separation now it's it's merging together and such that it is possible for someone to to do the the um the prohibition i think one of the things we ought to keep in mind is that um this whole argument goes back to this guy gordon and i, I believe and you know i i remember reading that book 
but I can't remember exactly if it's if if it's this particular book that had this in it, but um there is a book that talks about these kinship systems and says that the uh the two moieties uh have to be all male and all female. And so that's where the myth of the uh, Amazons come from is that originally there had to be total separation of the of the men and the women in order to get the 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 uh the 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 structure of the uh, kinship and the way that the moieties were structured um you know eventually and so basically they're arguing that there's some kind of vanishing mediator state here that that is of complete separation and and so i think I think that it's from this guy Pierre Gordon that there, his this argument is coming, and basically the argument is that we have to start we have to think about the way semiotic systems uh, are constructed by 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 thinking that there must have been a prior state of complete separation prior to the the construction of the specific kind of intermingling we have in semiotic systems. And I think that's what they're getting at here. But they're they're kind of using this genealogical vocabulary to talk about. I think that's actually a fair way of breaking it down. Uh, to quote Holland, uh, since subject peoples now owe their despot everything, he has thereby gained the right of access to all women indiscriminately, regardless of their former lineage or erstwhile alliance obligations. The despot is in principle everyone's father, but also everyone's son, brother, and spouse, hence the figure of incest, which had appeared as a mere afterimage of positive marriage inducements under savagery, now becomes in a sense ubiquitous and inevitable, if only symbolically, with the new alliance and direct filiation relations of despotism. Uh, essentially, uh, at, at, at one point in savagery, uh, it was uh, sort of seen as a, it wasn't a direct prohibition by any stretch because incest was something that was simply just not really considered except in the after effects of the way society tended to operate. But under despotism, uh, all of those things that were rules that were somewhat unwritten are gone. And uh, because of everyone owing the despot everything, because he's lineage-wise, uh, hereditary-wise, alliance-wise, he is God for all intents and purposes. Uh, he gets all of the women. So all those rules go away. It's an interesting comparison. So um, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with, with this um, uh, section, but um, I want to, I guess, ask you guys, um, is, would it be correct to say that this is trying to link up the idea earlier in the chapter about the uh, uh, press represented and so on um, with the with the notion of the uh, the despot as the kind of as the socius as the um, source um, for for society, I suppose for for the production of <clears throat> goods and meaning. So yes, I, I I don't want to I don't want to uh, do yeah. a little cheating and jump ahead, but they do talk a great deal about what the repressed representation repressing representation implies and how it uh, acts on the socius. 
uh, and acts on sort of the populace uh, in, I think, literally the next page. Right. Because I mean, insofar as it's, um, as it's discussing linguistics, I'm a bit lost. Um, if I can sort of translate it back in my head, um, <laughs> sort of back into, um, you know, a, a, a broader political point, it makes a bit more sense to me. Um, <clears throat> I, I, it seems to be very, very much related to that idea of repressed representative in the sense that the, the process of signification produces the thing which it aims to um, prohibit, I suppose. Um and yet, at the same time, uh, similarly, the, the, the signification actually makes the original signified even more obscure than it already was prior to the prior to this process. So that seems to be what they're getting out to me. That last sort of section. Um, I, I'm, I, I would reverse it, right? Where like the signifier is what's obscure and like removed. And the signifieds are what you like keep bumping into. I think that's that's kind of like okay, right? Yeah, that would, that would make sense. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe um, Kent can talk about it because I think Kent's reading Derrida right now. But I, I think that's an idea from Derrida where you kind of chase signifiers around and around, but you only end up bumping into signifieds. But maybe I'm wrong. No, uh, no, it's like the contrary. For Derrida, there's no no more uh, signified. There are only signifiers, only ah, signifiers in relation to each other. And it's his critique of metaphysics that every system of graphism, of uh, letters, etc., cetera, um, is like bound to this difference of signified and signifier. Um, but at last, it's always just signifiers relating to each other without uh, getting to uh, some sense of truth or um, some sort of uh, true world or stuff like that. It's always this this spiel he calls it uh, in the German sense. Uh, this this game of signifiers that don't come to an end. Thank you. Okay, now it's so that it is sort of a dialogue. It's just this sort of they're disagreeing. They're they're saying the opposite. So so the the. Um, you know, the, the problem is that we don't know how to account for the, the kind of difference between the signifier and the signified. How, how is the signified produced? Uh, how, do, how do we get from concrete things to, like, meanings? And so what they're saying is that you have to start off with two signifiers uh, that are separate from each other. Um, and then go through a transformation where you produce the hierarchy where the the invisible signifier signify invisible signify is over the signifier. There's actually when you start off, there's a this this uh, separation between the the two signifies, and uh, and and so, but that's back here in this uh, uh, this guy. Uh, Leroy Gorhan. I mean, he's the one who comes up with this, that there's a complete separation between the voice and the, the, the grapheme, between the ha- hand and the mouth, he said, in, in the development of technology. And so, and so it's, a, it's an interesting argument. And, and, but, but by the way, 
it's exactly the argument that Deleuze makes in difference and repetition, that that horizontal difference um, is, uh, you know, you have to get from from that external difference, which is horizontal, to an internal difference of intensity and quality that is vertical. And so difference and repetition talks about that transformation from the horizontal difference that's external to the the, the vertical difference internal. And I think we're getting a replay of that basic argument here. So I, I wanted to sort of ask a question, but in response to what, uh, I don't know your name, I'm afraid, Muskie? Um, Hi. The idea of um, the role of a despot in this. So is the idea here that um, with this, the introduction of this new regime, um, the despot is kind of um, coterminous with a process of overcoding. Um, and so that when they talk about um, the sort of a rigid law, I suppose, the idea is that um, in the process of this um, imperial regime, what happens is um, a kind of unilateral, in a sense, um, uh, a sense of meaning is imparted by by this despotism such that um, there's a more rigid understanding of how these signifiers are at play. Um, is that is that sort of the idea here that previously there may have been graphism, but there wasn't the same sort of overcoding and that um, things were much more uh, malleable, I suppose? Is, is that sort of the idea? I think that's what that I like. I agree with you. Yeah. So like, that's how I'm reading it. Um, I like the quote that the footnote gives from Leotard, right? Where like uh, the quote is at the bottom of page 204 and it says, words are not things, but as soon as there is a word, the object designated becomes a sign, which means precisely that it conceals a hidden content within its manifest identity and that it reserves another face for another view focused on it, which perhaps will never be seen. Like the process of coming to this despotism, the despot kind of allows that logic of the sign to like exist because he breaks away from the sort of society as it existed previously and like commits the incest taboo. And he sort of becomes this sort of deterritorialized signifier that makes all these other meanings possible, kind of like they're playing on Lacan, right? They're sort of taking that sort of phallic operation that Lacan uses and they're applying it to a particular mode of society and they're modifying it and critiquing it. Well, so I, I'm, I, I just want to jump in because I think I, I'm hesitant to say that one is they're saying one is causative of the other. The despot uh, is causative of making signs representative of things. They seem to say that there's a simultaneity to how this happened, that uh, the despot through uh, kind of this weird, hey, uh, boy, I, I'm actually the guy that everyone should be, that everyone's descendant from, everyone's related to, you all owe me everything, sort of playing that game inside of the savage society happened to be along the same time that uh, as they talk about the, uh, what is the example, the Akkadians uh, meet the uh, Sumerians and uh, this, the Akkadian comes along and asks his Sumerian, what is, what's this sign? The Sumerian replies, that's A. Uh, the Akkadian takes this sign for A, and on this point, there's no longer a relationship between the sign and water, even though that sign used to symbolize water as a pictogram. Uh, and at that point, the Akkadian, it's called Mu. I believe the presence of the Akkadians determined the phonetization of the writing system, that the contact of two peoples is necessary for the spark of new writing can spring forth. I, I think they're talking about these things happening at the same time. And 
I, I'm hesitant to say that they're saying directly that the despot's the cause of it. Do they say that in there? No, I think you're right. I think it's better to talk about it like it's a quasi cause, right? Like, which is a word that they would use. Yes. I think it's a, yeah, yeah. fuzzy. It's fuzzier than direct cause. It's these things happened. Uh, they, these things coincided and, and they're the things that enabled us to sort of take what used to be uh, pictograms and signs that uh, were fuzzy. And we gave them the, these signifiers, these letters, these words, these terrible fascist linear things that uh, mean very specific things. And the meaning of those things is determined by hierarchy and changes over time, but only as the hierarchy determines and that that empowers the despot uh, sort of throughout. Yeah, because I, I mean, this may be um, different. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> so I may not be making sense, but I was reading earlier for a paper I'm writing about um, uh, their the views on, on on fascism, both both in Antiedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. And there's a number of points where when we talk about micro fascism or sort of the micro the micro desire, you know, the micro politics of it, one of their concerns is the way in which. Um, it manifests itself in a desire for the imposition of rules and meaning and order and stability against a backdrop of perceived chaos. Um, that's what they think, where it starts from, essentially. Um, and may, maybe that's a similar thing with, with the, um, under a kind of a, a sort of system or regime of despotism in the sense that there's a similar process going on there through overcoding. What it does is it imposes some of those sorts of, those sorts of um, uh, rigid uh, meanings and structures and so on over a previously much more free uh, play of, 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 I'm using the word meanings in, you know, quotation marks here because, you know, it gets complex, but maybe that's a sort of similar um, phenomenon to what we're describing. Um obviously sort of quasi-causal in the sense that, you know, you have to explain firstly where despotism comes from, you know, without being circular. Um, but to the extent that despotism both enables, produces, and is produced by a kind of um, uh, imposition of meaning and rigidity um, and that therefore fixes meanings uh, and signifiers in this way, maybe, maybe that's sort of <laughs> what they're getting at. <laughs> well, no, I, th I think it very much is because they talk specifically at the end of that paragraph about what made incest impossible, that at times we had mother, sister, but not the persons or the bodies. Uh, well, at other times we had the bodies, but the Appalachians disappeared from view as soon as we broke through the prohibitions they bore. All of that is completely gone. Uh, incest has become possible in the wedding of kinship bodies and family Appalachians in the union of signifier with signifieds. I'm going to keep reading because they're about to go into and use the word true sister and true mother, which I think is much more about uh, really getting at what they specifically mean by signifier and signified and mother and sister. Um, so to read, uh, hence it is by no means a question of knowing if the despot marries his true sister or his true mother, for in any case his true sister is the sister of the wilderness, just as his true mother is the mother of the tribe. Once incest is possible, it matters litter little whether it is simulated or not, since in any case something else is again simulated through incest. And in accordance with the complementarity of simulation and identity that we encountered earlier, if the identification is that of the object on high, the simulation is indeed the writing that corresponds to it. The flux that flows from this object, the graphic flux that flows from the voice. Simulation does not replace reality. 
It is not an equivalent that stands for reality, but rather it appropriates reality in the operation of despotic overcoating. It produces reality on the new full body that replaces the Earth. It expresses the appropriation and production of the real by a quasi-cause. Hey! Quasi-cause. In incest, it is the signifier that makes love with the signifieds. Someone put a pin in that? I want someone to explain that to me. System of simulation is the other name for signification and subordination. And what is simulated and therefore produced through the incest that is itself simulated and therefore produced, all the more real for being simulated and vice versa, is something very much like the extreme states of a reconstituted, recreated intensity. With his sister, the despot simulates a zero state from which the phallic force will arise like a promise, whose hidden presence in the very interior of the body must be situated at the extreme limit. And with his mother, the despot simulates a superforce, where the two sexes would be at the maximum degree of externalization of their specific natures, the B-A-B-A of the phallus as a voice. I, I would love to focus on the sentence so I can understand it because it feels like this is their point of this paragraph. In incest, it is the signifier that makes love with its signifieds. My brain isn't. Okay. Um, really wild guess. Okay. Um, could this, given we were talking about Derrida already, I mean, this is sort of his point, right? That the, uh, there's never a clear distinction between the, the signifier and the signifies, and that they always um, have a kind of uh, both a slippage in terms of the stability of its meaning, and also that they uh, the, the boundaries are porous um, and they both sort of flow over into each other. So maybe that's sort of a, uh, a coded reference to this idea that the, the, the about, about the interplay of signifier and signified and a sort of nonlinear uh, relationship. That's my best guess, okay? <laughs> so, like, for me, this is, like, fleshing out that sort of analogy, right, where the process of becoming a despot, right, or the process of becoming a despotic society um, produces that sort of signifier, right, detaches that, that sort of signifier. <laughs> and, then, and then the sort of despot going into the wilderness and... Uh, and uh, uh, fucking the sister or, or making love to the sister or whatever is the sort of, like the sister is the sort of signified, I think. And that's the analogy as I read it, but mm, maybe uh, maybe I'm off. I, I think it might be worth recalling too that they're, if I remember correctly, what they're going through here is how the territorial representation upon the socius is changing so right like it's it's not the sister and and the mother like they're saying right it's um so like in the context of the the signify the signifier making love to its signified right that seems to be like the material sign excuse me the material element of the sign being forced upon the um the mental aspects of the sign One of, one of the things we have to remember is that for uh, Deleuze, um, he's always talking about uh, signifying chains, and he always wants two signifying chains. Uh, and so, you know, two chains of signifiers. 
And so the way I would interpret this is that you have to have these two chains of signifiers and that the floating signifier uh, is the is the interaction between those two chains. And so that's why there's there has to be two, two different chains of signifiers, the signified uh, kind of uh, arises from those two. And, and, and when you think about it, that, that kind of makes sense with respect to the graphism, because graphism, the point that uh, is made is that uh, graphism is two-dimensional, whereas the alphabet is one-dimensional. So you've lost a dimension there. And, and so where the two chains interact is in this, this surface dimension. And out of that, that out of that interaction become, becomes the floating signifier. I've got, a bo- I've got a bonus question. Can someone explain to me how something is more real for being simulated? Okay, it's not just me. <laughs> well, okay. Um, I want to, I so, want to, I want to, I, I will take a crack at this because I think it's, okay. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say more real. That's, uh, uh, so, I, I again, and I know a lot of us have a lot of uh, dif- disagreements in how we think of Deleuze's conception of the virtual uh, versus the real. I'm hesitant to say that he would say that the virtual is not real. Uh, I would think he would say it's not material, but I don't know if that's the same thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, so the, the, the virtual is every bit as real as the actual. It's just different. <laughs> which <laughs> It's unactualized, right? And I would so, lean towards that being the answer. So could I, I mentioned Gelertner. Gelertner has this book he wrote. Uh, he, was, he was the guy who got blown up by the Unibomber. But anyway, he wrote this fantastic book called Mirror Worlds. And uh, in that book, he describes that it's not going to be virtual reality um, that's going to take over. It's going to be mirror worlds. And so mirror worlds are where you augment uh, reality with a simulation. And so that the, the simulation is, you know, the idea of virtual worlds is that the virtual world is kind of free of normal reality and it has its own laws and so forth. But Gelertner was saying that really what we're going to get are mirror worlds and, and, and mirror worlds are not free. They are augmentations and um, additions to the uh the the you know the reality you know we kind of see data like for instance you know you see with these idea of the of the digital glasses that uh you know you're walking down the street and it recognizes someone and puts up their name so that you know you you can know who you're looking at that would be a, a mirror world and so and so Ooh. One of the ideas of mirror worlds is that the the reality and the virtual are are paired with each other and each augmenting the other. So, the example of like a pair of smart glasses uh, registering someone's face on the street and popping up their like name or their Facebook page or whatever um, is interesting because I'm wondering if we can connect it to the sentence we were just talking about, about the signifiers making love to the signified. If that, if, if, if that is a solid example of what they're describing in this despotic process. Yeah, because the uh, signifier is always reacting to another signifier, uh, 
which stands in this case uh, as it's signified. Uh, a signifier can also be a signified. And the virtual is always in parallel with reality. So uh, it, it um, opens a field of possible interactions, like when you look uh, in the face of someone with uh, Google Glasses and these these uh, virtual screen pops up. Um, it is because something is really there. And with this um, virtual interface, you now have the possibility to interact with the signifier uh, in specific ways. Um, and in contrast to that, the potential would uh, only be something uh, that is uh, in the future, like always there is reality and uh, the potential can be another realization of uh, reality. But the virtual is like um, something that um, yeah, is interconnected with reality itself and not uh, in this temporal sense. So I'm seeing uh, that like this is different from the society that they were describing previous, right? The sort of primitive processes where graphism is either like something tattooed or like cut into the body or it's something, you know, a pictograph, right? Something that isn't an alphabet, isn't aligned with the voice. Where, whereas this process that we're talking about seems like it has to have, you know, a sort of detached voice, right? That sort of mute voice that they talk about. Which, which by the way, shows up as the narrator in novels. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of, I think what they're proposing and, and let me know if this is uh, off, right. Is that this, this despotic process is both like uh, uh, maybe like produced by, or a result of, and produces that sort of mute voice, right. That sort of falling back of the sort of graphism on the voice. That well, we talk about. There, there's another part to this, which is uh, let's, let's just talk about pure distance because when we're talking about uh, the savage societies, they're very clear uh, that in primitive societies, it's actually small groups of people. Uh, uh, sociologists would call it probably within monkey circle numbers, 50, 100, 150 people. You know everyone. They're all nearby. If something needs to be done, you yell out, hey, I need some food. Hey, build that barn, shit like that. The despot, however, is basically uh, that step removed. And they earlier talked about, uh, as an example, the building of the Great Wall of China, Kafka's story about building the wall, where the peasant doesn't actually understand what his goal is, why he's doing what he's doing. He just knows he must do the work. Uh, and so the difference is that the voice uh, that existed in primitive uh, societies is uh, the inscriptions were things that literally happened on the body in front of people. Everyone was able to literally see it and everyone was able to take part in these uh, ceremonies, these these excesses and these orders and these decisions that were happening at a you know large tribal level. But when you actually have a despot who's writing down, literally writing down, hey, build a fucking wall here. Uh, hey, build Hadrian's wall here. He doesn't go anywhere. The, the, the peasants in that area of the world or wherever he is a despot don't actually hear Steve the despot's voice. Uh, instead, it's uh, what Steve wrote or what his uh, is his subordinate brought along or his minister or whatever wording we want to use for that person. And that, that signifier then literally is the replacement for the voice. And that's a big shift because there, there never was a replacement for the voice. The voice was the thing people talked. There was the, 
whether it was screaming or whether it was inscription literally on the body, the uh, to, to quote Holland, the role of the eye in appreciating inscription diminished measurably during this time. It no longer seals the voice. Graphics relation appreciates the pain and sanctions, the effects of ritual inscription. Instead, the eye merely reads what has been written, often in the foreign language of conquerors. Body representations, Deleuze and Guattari say, have become subordinate to verbal representations. Moreover, in order to make sense of these signifiers of a mysterious written voice that speaks from on high, again, Alexander the Great didn't literally wander everywhere. We didn't have Zoom back then. You, you couldn't have conversations. Um, in order to make sense of the signifiers of a mysterious written voice that speaks from on high, state subjects must have recourse to interpretation. Writing no longer directly designates valued objects of desire while allocating them within the savage community. Writing now entails wanting to know what an absent other wants. A second pacification of despotic subjects takes place, accompanying the ever-present threat of death, which they get into uh, actually about two pages from now. So that's the the big change is that this they're speaking less or maybe they're speaking generally, but I think they're in this directly talking about that voice and the signified of the despot and how he is seen and how people deal with him as as the body that is inscribed or having inscription done and how they see that. And when the inscriptions are written and someone writes, oh, we're going to do this, we're building a church, we're doing this, they're doing it on behalf of the despot. Uh, yeah, to quote Jack, body representation subordinates itself to word representation. Sister and mother are the voices signified. It's uh, his his way of the Steve, the despot, how he talks about these things. Okay, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. That's dead on. Um, I'm reminded of what the, of uh, with your earlier example about the idea that you would just like shout, right? It, it the 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 word that they used or that they sort of coined voice audition. It took me a minute to figure out that audition means hearing, like the idea of the capacity of being able to hear, and right. and, and yeah, yeah, not like audition as in like I'm trying out for this role. Right. No, we're not talking about American Idol. It's literally the the sort of the act of 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 um, uh, comprehending, apprehending, what's the word I'm looking for? Whatever. Yes, the answer is yes, I'm agreeing. <laughs> Sorry. So, so I, I think we ought to try to remember here that, uh, you know, the, the, the primitive uh, socius is, uh, you know, it's a horizontal differences. And then suddenly you get this emergent uh, production of, uh, vertical differences in which you've got a despot and and his train and the bureaucracy that uh, covers a large area. And so things are very different in this new modality. And then and then in capitalism it seems like you you almost go back to something like the primitive in the sense that the all of the codes that are set up in the hierarchy get decoded because uh, Flows flows of money are more important than, uh, you know, it's like what happened in Europe, getting rid of the royal family. You know, flows of money are are way more important than the uh, the hierarchy set up society maintain control. And then and then you know to kind of focus on this uh, uh, point of quasi cause quasi causes are kind of like correlations and side effects that that taken together produce an emergent effect. Yes. So I'm actually on this, I'm going to start 
Uh, I'm going to continue to read because I really do want to start getting through. Uh, the re There's a couple more paragraphs where we really start answering and having specifically what you're talking about, Kent, uh, actually talked about. Um, hence, something else is always at issue in royal incest. Bisexuality, homosexuality, castration, transvestism. As so many gradients and passages in the cycle of intensities. This is because the despotic signifier aims at the reconstitution of the full body of the intense earth that the primitive machine had repressed. But on new foundations, or under new conditions present in the deterritorialized full body of the despot himself. This is the reason that incest changes its meaning or locus, and becomes the repressing representation. For what is at stake in the overcoating affected by incest is the following, that all the organs of all the subjects, all the eyes, the mouths, the penises, vaginas, ears, anuses, become attached to the full body of the despot as though to the peacock's tail of a royal train, and that they have in this body their own intensive representatives. Royal incest is inseparable from the intense multiplication of organs and their inscription on the new full body. Saad clearly saw, saw clearly this always royal role of incest. I'm assuming they mean the Marquis de Saad. Uh, the apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, i.e. the repression, the repressing representation now finds itself defined in terms of supreme danger that expresses the representative on which it bears. The danger that a single organ might flow outside the despotic body, that it might break away or escape. Suddenly the despot sees rising up before him, against him, the enemy who brings death. An eye with too steady a look, a mouth with too unfamiliar a smile. Each organ is a possible protest. It is at one and the same time that a half-dead Caesar complains of an ear that no longer hears and sees weighing on him the look of Cassius, lean and hungry, and the smile of Cassius, who smiles in such a sort as if he'd mocked himself. A long chronicle that will carry the assassinated, dismembered, disorganized, uh, and they do hyphenate disorganized, I think intentionally, filed down body of the despot into the latrines of the city. Wasn't it already the anus that detached the object on high and produced the eminent voice? Didn't the transcendence of the phallus depend on the anus? But the latter is revealed only at the end, as the last vestige of the vanished, the vanished despot underside of his voice. The despot is nothing more than this dead rat's ass suspended from the ceiling of the sky. The organs begin by detaching themselves from the despotic body, the organs of the citizen, rising up, risen up against the tyrant. Then they will become those of private man. They will become privatized after the model and memory of the disgraced anus, ejected from the social field, the obsessive fear of smelling bad. The entire history of primitive coding, of despotic overcoding, and of the decoding of private man, turns on these movements of flows. The intense germinal influx, the surflux of royal incest, and the reflux of excrement that conducts the dead despot to the latrines and conducts us all to today's private man. The history sketched out by Artaud in his masterpiece, Heliogabal. Not going to pronounce that correctly. The entire history of the graphic flux goes from the flood of sperm in the tyrant's cradle to the wave of shit in his sewer tome. All writing is so much pig shit. All writing 
Is this simulation sperm and excrement? So that's a lot. <laughs> so much of that, uh, I really like a lot of the lines. I like a lot of the thoughts. But the part I think that's very important to take from this paragraph is the discussion of basically how the despot almost is his own end. Uh, the despotic signifier uh, recon reconstitutes the entire body, all these deterritorialized organs that rule under him. They all become his, just like incest becomes his. Everything becomes his. It's all his. He is, uh, uh, to speak sort of as the socius, uh, it's not so much that he's a body without organs, it's that he, he represents all of them. He is all of the organs. Uh, because he is all of the organs, all the things that are happening, all the machines, the change in his entire world is the moment he doesn't recognize them, the moment that they aren't owned by him, they aren't controlled by him. That's death on the horizon constantly. I like that. Yeah, so I uh, joined late, sorry guys, but uh, just a little something to uh, make this a little clearer. Deleuze and Gattari, they come with an ontology of relation, not an ontology of things. So you always need to see the parts in relation to one another. The parts are insignificant by themselves. It's only when they are weaved or stitched together or uh, folded one onto the other that they start to make sense. So basically this body of the sovereign or like the king or whatever, this spot is, uh, is a form of stitching. It's a form of weaving parts together, and he makes parts within himself by stitching them together. So the destitching, you know, which would be a deterritorialization, makes it that a new configuration or a new assemblage can rise up. So, you know, it's a really easy way to understand all of this. To that point, though, there does seem to be like a weird irony behind that, right, where they write, this is because the despot signifier aims at the reconstitution of the full body of the intense earth. That the primitive machine had repressed, but on new foundations or under new con new conditions present in the deterritorialized full body of the despot himself, where you've got the this relationship of how in the previous system, which is still very much like it's still sort of there, right? Like the memories there, the 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 despotic warts in relation to the primitive, but in, in that sense, like you have this sort of re this attempt to reinvigorate the earth but to to reinvigorate upon the deter the deterritorial the deterritorialized body of the despot mm -hmm. and everything always remains so what has been repressed into a territorialized uh, form will remain into the re-territorialized or the deterritorialized form Yeah, if I'm understanding this correctly, the, what is deterritorialized, right? This transcendent function of like writing with the signifieds, um, right? Through accounting, through law, and, and through writing just in general, seems to be the stitching together of the body of the dust that you're discussing. Mm -hmm. And the stitching is never the same depending on the regime you're in. So, you know, it's never going to be like a. A systematic uh, restructuring. It's we're, we're not into system thinking like this. It's uh, it's just a matter of assemblage, deassemblage, and reassemblage. Yeah, the 
maybe that's where part of the like trouble is uh, in understanding this section for me is that like this isn't a structural thing, but they're still doing this like they're proposing this kind of like timeline. But it's I want to be careful with the word timeline because yeah, it's a timeline that's non-linear where like elements of that primitive system are still present in this despotic system, and then elements of the despotic system are going to be present in the next system. Um, so it's not right to look at it as a structure, but it is right to look at it as if they're sort of proposing a way of understanding the logical processes that come to be embodied in like this sort of Oedipus and this sort of like capitalism at the end stage. Yeah, so it's, it's procedural thinking. So what's important is not, it's not the structure in itself. It's, it's the ways that the form is being, um, you know, crystallized or sedimented or whatever. Um, so it just, it's just a, like a little, a little key for the mind to understand. It's, I think it's useful. Maybe like other people would like object this, but um, yeah, to always see it as process and always see it as a form of stitching. Yeah, that definitely helps. It, it, it sort of squares with what I know about Deleuze, right? Where philosophy is the production of concepts. And so thinking about this as sort of a way of, you know, working your brain through a procedure of understanding capitalism that they're going to, you know, work into what becomes schizoanalysis at the end helps me understand what they're doing in this if it's not advancing a structure for the way that like history has actually played out. Yeah, uh, there's something at towards the end of the book. I don't remember like which page is it. It's, I'm I, I've only read the French version, but um, they will say I will translate it as roughly. Um, they say uh, in in the genetic code, like in uh, the social codes, what we call as a signifying chain is just a jargon, um, more than a language. It's built upon elements that are non-significant and that only takes a sense or an effect of signification and how they are um, brought together and how they are forming uh, a chain of meaning so and there's you know there's a dependency upon um, upon the relation um, between the elements and how there's like a superposition, like, you know, an, a an addition between those relations. But it's not the, the elements in themselves that are important. So it's really the relation and the process of these elements coming together. That squares with what I read from um, Chaosophy the other day, which which maybe, maybe now we're starting to get a little beyond the scope of this paragraph and we should... Uh, press on, but reading Everyone Wants to Be a Fascist, where Guattari is talking about how groups are the important like uh, movers in terms of power in society instead of individual like speeches, like the kind he's giving, and he talks about the irony of that moment. Like What you were saying squares with that for me. Mm -hmm. So it's it's the underlying logic of the whole thing. So, you know, if you understand that, like the, everything that they say that seems to be... Uh, a little empty, you know, you, you start to find the meaning of what they're actually trying to say. 
I say we push on without bricks. Agreed. So, okay, push. who wants to read? Because I don't have the English version. Quick, quick question before we do. Am I understanding this correctly that with private man arising here, right, this is still very much in the um, the despotic, and that is to say, like, this is private man as the artisan, as, like, Caesar's Senate, right, where this, this power, yeah, the, the socius might be the despot's body, but the, it's, it doesn't, there's more going on than just that, right? Like, the senators um, in Rome have a tremendous amount of power and a way of perverting the socius or the despotic. I think that's fair. I think I'm reminded of um, what we were talking about uh, or what I said earlier, right? Where this is a timeline, but elements, it's sort of like nonlinear, right? Where like, so when they say like this conducts us to today's private man, I think they do mean that like there's a psychology that gets sketched out in this stage that is still relevant today, but that we haven't gotten to the sort of moves that make, you know, the, today's era a sort of separate eon in history for them. Well, that would definitely, probably be... Definitely, despotism is uh, relevant today. Yeah, and it's here, it's not only the despotism uh, in a political sense, it's always the despotism in, in contrast to this primitive notion of direct uh, expression, of marking things and people uh, in your direct uh, surroundings. And the despotism isn't uh, uh, always this, this political uh, aspect, but also um, simply uh, the the creation and usage of a writing system or some uh, fixed sense of communication like there's always uh, a syntactic system underlying it and by using uh, a specific uh, form of phonetic writing you are under the despot of this system so it's not uh, only in this uh, big sense of a, of a tyrant or a, or a monarch that uh tries to to tax his people or stuff like that well with that we should probably move into the next paragraph fair um, enough uh would you want to read jack <laughs> sure all right one might think that the system of imperial representation was in spite of everything milder than that of territorial representation. The signs are no longer inscribed in the flesh itself, but on stones, parchments, pieces of currency, and lists. According to Wittfogel's law of, quotes, diminishing administrative returns, end quotes, wide sectors are left semi-autonomous insofar as they do not compromise the power of the state. The eye no longer extracts a surplus value from the spectacle of suffering. It has ceased to evaluate. It has begun, rather, to so-called forewarn and keep watch, to see that no surplus value escapes from the overcoating of the despotic machine. For all the organs and their functions experience a detachment and elevation that relates them to and makes them converge on the full body of the despot. In point of fact, the regime is not milder. The system of terror has replaced the system of cruelty. The old cruelty persists, especially in the autonomous or quasi-autonomous sectors, but it is now bricked 
into the state apparatus, which at times organizes it and at other times tolerates or limits it in order to make it serve the end of the state and to subsume it under the higher superimposed unity of a capital L law that is more terrible. As a matter of fact, the law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late when the state presents itself as an apparent peacemaker between classes that become distinct from the state, making it necessary for the latter to reshape its form of sovereignty. And I will read the footnote to that sentence real quick. Regarding the transition from a royal system of justice based on a magical religious speech to a city-state system of justice based on a speech's dialogue, and regarding the change in so-called sovereignty that corresponds to this transition, see El Jeunet, and then there's a bunch of French words that I don't know, and something by Michel Foucault, reference note 48. Yeah, it's uh, Michel Foucault in uh, Volonté de Savoir. So it will be rights and pre-rights in ancient Greek into the uh, socio- sociological uh, year, blah, blah, blah. So. But what's it, something that's important here is the, the aspect of the peacemaker. The peacemaker is what brings stuff together. So like this notion of stitching is still at work here. Yeah, and again, with, to make an ironic point, it's peacemaker, but in opposition to the law, right? It's kind of a strange point here that the, the state steps, steps in and with opposition to the law to make peace. Well, then I'm going to actually uh, keep us moving on. And uh, it is worth reading if you haven't uh, tried linked to Terrence Blake's uh, notes on how to read. Just before we go, um, th- this question, I think it's on reverse because when they say in the footnote, it's it's the passage from a royal justice. So the sovereign, the, the, the sovereign body of the king towards um, a justice of the city based on the communication between uh, the citizens. So it's, it's, it's the reverse. The, the peace bringer is the is saying that we're stitching society together through dialogue and through the word instead of stitching together uh, through the transcendental God-given right to govern of the sovereign. So this is this is something like this is important in Michel Foucault, uh, the passage between the sovereign to like liberal society, and they're talking. That's that's what they're talking about here. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about a, a specific instance then, because I think we are in a place right now in American history. While it may not be during this time frame that they're discussing. I don't think it's ridiculous to talk about the way that the riots are being handled by both parties that are supposedly the opposition and the one in power very much uh, is now bricked into the state apparatus, which at times organizes it and at other times tolerates or limits, make it serve the ends of the state. Uh, As a matter of fact, the law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late. When the state presents itself as an apparent peacemaker between classes that become distinct from the state, making it necessary for the latter to reshape its form of sovereignty. Uh, We're seeing a lot of that happen literally around us right now, feels like. At least us in America. But with a slightly different twist, right? Because if this were the despotic 
Well, I mean, okay, with even with the context of the Senate, right, you can see that there is, um, in, in some ways, the debate in the U.S. is two-sided, right? It's about how to change the law. Do we make the law stricter? Or do we change the laws to sort of appease the riot? Well, I, I don't think that's what's happening at all. I, I couldn't. I, if you if you watch the actual rhetoric coming out of both sides, uh, the rhetoric is that I and they say this. Biden says this and Trump says this. I will be the one who protects you. I will be the one to save you. Uh, I know what I'm doing. I will be able to fix all of this for you and I will figure out how. Now, neither of them has a plan like Biden's plans a little bit more built out, but none of it directly points to anything. It's a series of decrees, and a lot of it is very particular on not changing systemically anything, literally just flowing more money into all of these situations. And so if we're talking about like Whitfogel's law, he's talking, Whitfogel's uh, breakdown was about, as they discussed earlier, and I'm, I hate using the word oriental, but it's about oriental imperialism. That's what he wrote about. Uh, specifically in China, how in China, the sort of Maoist state or China operated because it's massive, tons of people, lots of smaller towns and how they did this sort of distributed state apparatus. And the distributed, the diminishing administrative returns was essentially the idea of um, you can't turn a, when you're cooking a fish, don't turn it too many times. Uh, if you turn it too many times, it falls apart. So at some point you need to allow these zones to be autonomous. Sorry, it's an old Confucian saying. It, it fit. Um, the uh, the reality is that you need to uh, have enough of a heavy hand inside of these situations, uh, at least perceptually, that you continue to have stuff going. But you have to leave people semi-autonomous. It, these these regions have to be left. Uh, otherwise, it compromises the power of the state because you spend too much time going in and and. And as you do that churn, as they're seeing, for example, with the Uyghurs, uh, you, you, you get too involved and it ends up becoming something that slowly uh, starts eating at your power and you perceptually are not able to see stuff. The way you maintain power in these situations is by uh, faking it. You got to fake it. And so you issue these large decrees. Some areas don't do it. You smack them around a little bit. Most areas do it. That's great. Uh, in America, this is very much how the federal government has handled most things that have happened in the last forever. Uh, but right now, for example, I'm outside of Portland. But uh, if you go to uh, Wisconsin uh, with the most recent murder uh, and they, they burned down the Homeland Security office, I think, last night there, um, these these things, the federal government, the more they get involved in these situations, as Trump saw, the more actually it shows that they're losers. They have these fat, dumpy guys come in who will work for the prison system, who got too involved and did too many things, and everyone got to see that they were basically ineffectual and it was pointless. And that diminished the state's power at a grand scale. It really did. Just, just sort of people laughing at them diminishes the state's power. And so when they're talking about here how the despot needs to maintain all of this, as a matter of fact, the law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late. The way that the law actually fights that and the way the law deals with these things uh, sort of in converse uh, is is the goal of what they're kind of pointing out is how uh, this sort of comes around uh, in and of itself. I may have, may have rambled too long. Sorry. But I think there's two important points there. One is that the despot 
has a power to reformulate the law, to revise it. And, and I think that's particularly important, um, both in this example and in, in context of this um, this passage, because we're talking about departing from a theater of cruelty to a theater of terror. And I think even if you... Well, let's let's read the next. The next paragraph is literally about the law and how the law works within within and against despotism. But unless someone has a comment directly on this paragraph, I'd love to continue the read. The law does not begin by being what it will become or seek to become later. The guarantee against despotism, an imminent principle that unites the parts into a whole and makes this whole the object of general knowledge. And will, whose sanctions are merely derivative of a judgment and an application directed at the rebellious parts. The imperial barbarian law possesses two features that are in opposition to those just mentioned, the two features that Kafka so forcefully developed. First, the paranoiac schizoid trait of the law, metonymy, according to which the law governs non-totalizable and non-totalized parts partitioning them off, organizing them as bricks, measuring their distance, and forbidding their communication, henceforth acting in the name of a formidable but formal and empty unity, capital U, eminent, distributive, and not collective. And second, the maniacal depressive trait, metaphor, according to which the law reveals nothing, and has no knowable object, the verdict having no existence prior to the penalty, and the statement of the law having no existence prior to the verdict. The trial by ordeal presents these two traits in a raw state. As in the machine of in the penal colony, it is the penalty that writes both the verdict and the rule that has been broken. In vain did the body liberate itself from its characteristic graphism in the system of connotation, for it now becomes the stone and the paper, the tablet and the currency on which the new writing is able to mark its figures, its phonetism, its alphabet. Overcoding is the essence of the law and the origin of the new sufferings of the body. Punishment has ceased to be a festive occasion, from which the eye extracts a surplus value in the magic triangle of alliance and filiation. Punishment becomes a vengeance, the vengeance of the voice, the hand, and the eye, now joined together on the despot, the vengeance of the new alliance, whose public character does not spoil the secret. I will bring you down I will bring down upon you the avenging sword of the vengeance of alliance for once again before it becomes a feigned guarantee against despotism the law is the invention of the despot himself it is the juridical form assumed by the infinite debt the jurist will be seen in the despot's perception up to the time of the late roman empires and the juridical form that will accompany the imperial formation the legislator alongside the monster gaius and commodus campanian and caracalla ulpian and heliogabalus the, the delirium of the twelve caesars and the golden age of roman law taking the debtor's side against the creditor when necessary so as to consolidate the infinite debt I think that last sentence was really good. And I think that sentence about in the penal colony was really good. And I think they were both very relevant to like what you and Jack were talking about, uh, you know, about these protests. The one about like in vain does the body something something because it becomes the pen and paper. It's like the protesters are very aware that they are the sort of paper, you know, being that the law is being enacted out on. Right. At least that was the connection I made. And 
Give me one second. I have to look at that at the book. No, I, I, I think that's how I read it too. In vain did the body liberate itself from the characteristic graphism in the system of connotation. One where once upon a time I was scarified and I was broken and bent for all of the people around me to see and for that coating of the desires to be brought large. Now I am the act of writing. Now I am the implement itself inside of the laws and by the hand of the despot. I am the implement. Uh, rather than freeing myself, I've actually become a tool of the machine. Yeah, ironically becoming the very sort of medium by which, you know, the, the where like in that sort of society of connotation, they call it, where like everyone was uh, like aware that they were the medium in a sort of visceral, like, you know, you're being tattooed kind of way. Um, here, the, the viscerality is sort of... It's just, it's hard to, hard to put in words where it's like you're, you're abstracted one level away where it becomes about this sort of law and order, right? This sort of punishment and this sort of system, right? But, well, but is that really even different? I guess, I guess that's why it's in vain, right? Because you, you move from one system to another where this, the sort of process of the graphism is still going to be acted out on your body. Yes, but the role of the suffering has changed, right? In the theater of cruelty for Deleuze and Guattari, the role of suffering is that of restoring surplus value to the eye, right? But in the theater of terror that we're seeing here, the role of suffering is to um, is a little bit different, right? It's both preventative, right? So terror works as preventing the surplus code from escaping, but it also seems to come with like punishing for that sake, right? So like, it seems to me that the, these laws could be mobilized in that sense, kind of like they're saying, decide with the debtor over the creditor, right? The the person who borrowed the money instead of the person who lent the money so as to extend the infinite debt. So it also perpetuates the infinitude of the debt um, through this use of terror. That's the difference that I was struggling to see. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. And if you haven't read uh, In the Penal Colony, uh, the Kafka story, uh, you should really read all Kafka before, before diving into Deleuze. They reference it a lot. Um, but it's a story of uh, the machine that uh, they put people into. Uh, people are declared instantly guilty, enter the machine. It slowly, essentially tortures people for uh, half a day. And during the second half of it, people have a truly religious, powerful experience. Um, and uh, to quote uh, from Wikipedia, because it's easy, um, as the last proponent of the machine, he strongly believes in its form of justice and the infallibility of the previous command, Commandant, who designed and built the device. In fact, the officer carries its blueprints with him and is the only person who can properly decipher them. No one else is allowed to handle these documents. This the story of the punishment and uh, everything being sort of in and of the act itself is an, it's an amazing, awful tale about how we view punishment and why we do it. Bureaucracy of banality of torture, I suppose. Really fantastic book. Well, it's, it's worth pointing out too, that the penalty, so, so to quote them as in the machine of the, in the penal colony by Kafka, it is the penalty that writes both the verdict and the rule that has been broken, right? So law is based on um, 
what is punitive in, in, in this um, in, in the despotic machine such that the law is established based upon um, punishments, it seems to me. Or rather, like the verdict and rule are based on the penalty, which I think made sense today. We, we follow the law based on what the penalty is. Well, and it's hard, again, uh, to just bring in stuff that's happening. Uh, if you watch the discourse that's happening about the young man who was shot seven times in the back for getting into his car, uh, immediately the discourse becomes kind of twofold. One is uh, my side. I don't I, the cop shouldn't have done that. Uh, then the other side is, uh, well, if he did it, he must have deserved it. Like there is very much this mentality today. Oh, the cop shot him a bunch of times. Let me find a reason for that. And they do that. That's what they do. They immediately dig into his past, his history. Oh, he turns out he was convicted a bunch of times for other stuff. And it's the penalty in and of itself, literally being uh, writing both the verdict and the rule that has been broken. I, it's We're seeing it happen every every day now. <laughs> Yeah, justice is not preventative or prescriptive. Justice is punishing, right? That's why we get, at least in my experience, that's why people get upset when the law doesn't punish or doesn't punish enough. We, we define justice through the penal. Yeah, it's a, to quote them, uh, before it becomes a feigned guarantee against despotism, the law is the invention of the despot himself. It is the juridical form assumed by the infinite debt. Uh, when you live in that place that the despot the the godhead whatever you want to call the person in charge uh, Steve I've been referring to him uh, that infinite debt that's backed up it's natural that this would be the, the way that jurist prudence would be handled just want to say I agree law perpetuates the infinite debt here as vengeance and a vengeance exercised in advance the imperial barbarian law crushes the whole primitive interplay of, a of action. The enacted, baji, and reaction. Passivity must now become the virtue of the subjects attached to the despotic body. As Nietzsche says when he shows precisely how punishment becomes a vengeance in the imperial formations, a tremendous quantity of freedom must have been expelled from the world, or at least from the visible world, and made, as it were, latent under the hammer blows and artist's violence. There occurs a detachment and elevation of the death instinct, which ceases to be coded in the interplay of savage actions and reactions, where fatalism is still something enacted, in order to become the somber agent of overcoding, the detached object that hovers over each subject as though the social machine had come unstuck from its desiring machines. Death, the desire of desire, the desire of the despot's desire, a latency inscribed in the bowels of the state apparatus. Better not a sole survivor than for a single organ to flow outside this apparatus or slip away from the body of the despot. This is because there is no other necessity, no other fatum, than that of the signifier and its relationships with its, with its signifieds. Such is the regime of terror. What the law is supposed to signify will only be revealed later, when it has evolved and assumed the new figure that appears to place it in opposition to despotism, 
but from the beginning it expresses the imperialism of the signifier that produces its signifieds as, as effects that are more effective and necessary as they escape knowing and as they owe all to their imminent cause. Occasionally it still happens that the young dogs will call for a return to the despotic signifier without exegesis or interpretation. Well, the law, however, wants to explain what it signifies to a certain independence of its signified against the despot, says the law. For the dogs, according to Kafka's observations, want desire to be firmly wedded to the law and their pure detachment and elevation of the death instinct rather than to hear, it is true, hypocritical doctors explain what it all means. But all that development of the democratic signified or the wrapping of the despotic signifier nevertheless forms part of the same question, sometimes open, sometimes barred, the same extended abstraction, a repressive machinery that always moves us away from the desiring machines, for there has never been but one state. The question, what is the use of that, fades more and more and disappears in the fog of pessimism, of nihilism, nada nada. Um, so I, I don't know what nada nada means in this context at all, whatsoever. Uh, nothing, nothing. Well, I, I know, I know what nada means literally. Thank you. But it's, it's, it's all that. It's just like <laughs> it's nothing more. It's, it's, it's. So, what is the use of that fades more and more and disappears into the fog of pessimism of nihilism? Nothing, nothing. Uh, yes. Feels of nothingness. Yeah. Fog of pessimism of nihilism. It, it's a pun on language, right? Like we saw earlier, where they were talking about how languages interact, right? Like. Pessimism, nihilism, nada, nada, Spanish for nothing, nothing. Like, it, it's almost like a biunivocality in, in some sense. What do we make of the sentence, there has only been one state? I'm not entirely sure how to parse that. Where is that? Just before. Yeah, just like right Thank towards you. the end there. Yeah, maybe it's worth reading the sentence before it because it looks like they're taking some of the momentum from that. Uh, they say they say it's the same question, you know. Uh, they, they say the development of the democratic uh, signified or the despotic uh, signifier in English. I think it's it's the same state. It's always the same state, but with different expression or different configura- uh, configuration or uh, assemblage. Let's well, to, to take the quote from uh, two paragraphs ago. Uh, As a matter of fact, the law's opposition or apparent opposition to despotism comes late. When the state presents itself as an apparent peacemaker between classes that become distinct from the state, making it necessary for the latter to reshape its form of sovereignty. Uh, how I read all of this is that uh, there is always one state, and the the lie is that the laws uh, we have are meant to stop us from being taken over by barbarians, not really what they're for, uh, over and over as we get to the place where there's rebellion as a class fights, as classes need to be reconciled. The form that the state may take changes, democratic, monarchistic, uh, fascistic, whatever, uh, but the reality is it's ultimately all the same power, the despotic. Yeah, and that's a really harsh criticism of social movements because 
uh, as social movements may ga uh, make gains in terms of right or you know anything else, uh, it's just being reintegrated into the state into the same logic because the states is like uh, feeding upon its contradictions. So it's 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 always the same instrument of domination and oppression that keeps going there, but with some reconfiguration. You know, to make sense of this new context and maintain a form of uh, hegemony on a territory. So it's 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 always the same thing. And this is, you know, you this goes against the liberal idea that, like, if we protest, if we do a bunch of things and we gain rights, we're going to change the world. We're going to change the world. Yes, but it's a world that is changing to maintain itself and maintain us in function. Yeah, and to that point, right, that's part of the use of terror in that, too. Even with the protests comes the terror of the, 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 the what do they call it, the fire, fire, the fiery sort of vengeance of the despot, right? Like, we're, we're reading this in terms of a, a, a different socius, I think, but I think the comparison you're making definitely works in the sense that even with um, the law and the despot as it is in this group dynamic, there is still this, um, you know, the state still functions as it seems to me to be that which has control over the apparatus of uh, repressing rep or, uh, of uh, representation. Mm -hmm. So if we want to take like something, uh, something easy to understand, for example, after Second World War, uh, the rise of the UN with the human rights, the human rights were the rights of the people who didn't have rights. So we made this as a sanctified um form of uh, inherent right to people and then you know it was supposed to be opposing um you know the terror the possible terror or the potential terror of the territorial state so and, but then human rights became more and more part of every government and you know like now national government will talk about human rights so basically what was the contradiction or resistance to the previous form is now integrated into the new form and now you know the heterogeneity of identities the more we prone identities and stuff it's being taken by the state so um the identitarian resistance uh is just now a function of the state well, so, it's you know, specifically the line, just to just to echo what you're saying, they have a line in this paragraph. What the law is supposed to signify will only be revealed later when it has evolved and assumed the new figure that appears to place it in opposition to despotism. It's uh, at any given point, we essentially are looking at things from the perspective of saying the way that the law worked before was in favor of despotism, but we're fixing it. This is when we fixed it. And I think he's saying a lot of this in regards for sure to French society uh, and everything that was happening at the time. But I mean, this is for all of us. And the law we think exists to protect us from these things. And the reality is it doesn't. And the way the law is, what the law is supposed to signify, what the law actually is, will actually come about and be revealed later when it's evolved and assumed a new figure that appears to place it in op opposition to despotism that we're incur you know, seeing now, even though that's all it's ever done is encourage despotism. Yeah, then it adjusts a little bit, but keeps those things in power. Yes, but let us not remember, or let us remember um, and keep this in mind too, that the law works in fact, the law doesn't do anything, right? Like the law exists separate from us. The law only comes into play 
when it's in, in, in a question of the, the punitive, right? Like to go back to the Kafka story, the law comes into comes into play when the commandant brings it into play. That's that is the function of power there. In the same way, whether we're dealing with the despotic or the capitalist society and sociocies, it seems to me that the one thing that is consistent is that the law does nothing and the use of it is always in question, right? That seems to me to be the the thrust of that last sentence where they write the question, what is the use of that, fades more and more and disappears in the fog of pessimism of nihilism, nada nada. All the things that are represented in the law, whether it's private property, whether it's personhood, what have you, right? Whether it's marriage or relationships, is all sitting above what is underneath it, right? The the imminence of it, if you want to be that way. But tell um, right, like to use Roger's example, even with gay marriage, right? Just because you get the legal rights afforded to marriage doesn't mean you've actually accomplished um, what your desiring machines, right, are out to, are setting out to do. It doesn't mean that you're consistent with what's going on in the unconscious. It simply means that you've gotten the concession within the system to be even more part of the system. Yep, and that's what, you know, the sad realization of everything that gets you when you're an activist. You're like, oh, God, we're, you're just reproducing everything. Well, and it's, it's uh, you have conversations with people in America, uh, my father. I say things like Trump's going to steal the election. He's going to try to get elected again, or he just won't. No, the law will stop him. Like, that's actually sentences that people say now. If he does something illegal, the law will stop him. And it's this uh, it's amazing thing. Um, I'm going to continue to uh, read on, see how much further we can get through. The order of law as it appears in the imperial formation and as it will evolve later, indeed, have something in common. The indifference to designation. It is in the nature of the law to signify without designating anything. The law does not designate anything or anybody. Democratic conceptual law will make this into a criterion. The complex relationship of designation, as we have seen, it elaborated in the system of primitive connotation with its interplay of voice, graphism, and eye. Here appears in the new relationship of barbarian subordination. How could designation subsist when the sign has ceased to be a position of desire in order to become this imperial sign, a universal castration that welds desire to law? It is the crushing of the old code. It is the new relationship of signification. It is the necessity of this new relationship established in the overcoding process that refers designations to the arbitrary or that lets them subsist in the form of bricks held over from the old system. Why is it that linguists are constantly rediscovering the truths of the despotic age? And finally, could it be that this arbitrariness of designations as the reverse side of necessary of a necessity of signification does not bear only on the despot subjects, nor even on his servants, but on the despot himself, his dynasty and his name? The people do not know what emperor is reigning and where there exists doubt regarding the name of the dynasty. This would mean that the death instinct is even more deeply rooted in the state than thought, and that latency not only befalls the subjects of the state, but is also at work in the highest machinery of the apparatus. The revenge becomes that of the subjects against the despot. In this latency system of terror, what is no longer active, enacted, or reacted to, 
This instinct for freedom for forcibly made latent, pushed back and repressed, incarcerated within and finally able to discharge and vent itself only on itself. That very thing is now resente. The eternal resentment of the subject's answers, the eternal vengeance of the despots. The inscription is resente when it is no longer enacted or reacted to. When the deterritorialized sign becomes a signifier, a formidable quantity of reaction passes into a latent state. All the resonance and all the retention change in volume and time, the after the event. Vengeance and resentment, not the beginning of justice, to be sure, but its becoming and its destiny in the imperial formation as Nietzsche analyzes it. And according to his prophecy, wouldn't the state itself be that dog which wants to die? But that is also reborn from its ashes. For it is this whole constellation of the new alliance, the imperialism of the signifier, the metaphoric or metonomic necessity of the signifieds, with the arbitrary of the designations, that ensures the maintenance of the system and sees to it that the name is succeeded by another name, one dynasty by another, without changing signifieds and without a collapse of the wall of the signifier. This is why the order of latency in the African, Chinese, Egyptian, and other empires was that of rebellions and constant secessions, and not that of revolution. Here again, death will have to be felt from within, but will have to come from without. So I think it, you know, it, it explains a little bit what we were talking earlier about, like the succession in the name from one dynasty to another, but like it always kind of remained the same. There's like an eternal return to the state in the sense that even if it changes form, it dies, reborns, whatever, it, it's just the same thing always. And another thing that maybe you guys want to discuss is when we say ressenti, it's, it's something that you feel. It's something that you feel inside. So it has more of uh, a relation to affects than to, um, you know, actions or reactions. And I stopped talking so somebody else would start talking. <laughs> well, I, I think that's just, I, I, I think that they're just flowing with what we were talking about. This, they're, I mean, they're about to get into a handful of other things around uh, how death uh, has to be felt from within, but it will have to come from without how, how these things fit together. But I, I'm starting to piece together how the signified and signifier and the ongoing signified uh, never changes uh, without a collapse of the wall of the signifier. It's a fascinating way that they're phrasing it. Although I'm really feeling the Orientalism and the, this is why the order of latency in African, Chinese, Egyptian, and other empires without a rebellions and constant secessions and not a revolution. It's like, uh, there's some history you don't know, but that's okay. Yeah, well, this, this is a sign of their times. So. It's, it's the time, yeah. But I do enjoy uh, the, the, the way that they talk. There's a timelessness, actually, the rest of the paragraph, I think, that works really nicely when they're talking about brushing the old code, relationships of signification, how these things move on, how the subjects... There's... Again, uh, and I, I, I bring up the discussion about modern. I, 
I'm starting to believe as they're talking about this, that they're not talking about these being sort of epochs of time where it was like, oh, now we're in the Anthropocene and anything, but much more that this is actually how the state behaves as an as an apparatus. This is how these things work, how the signifieds come together, and that when we start talking about capital actually coming in, that it almost uh, layers on top of everything that's happening. Because all this is stuff that I can point one-to-one shit happening today, not just in my own country, but in a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you could go back. You could go into a religious understanding of the ancient testament. You know, the Arch of Alliance, and then, you know, Moses coming down the fucking mountain with the tablets and being pissed off and breaking them. You know, when they say about the alliance, the alliance between God and the population, it's it's the same thing, you know. So you can relate to, like, the different uh, historical moments, even though they have different configuration. It's like they give you an equation to understand each of them. But the, the components of the equation, they change. But the equation kind of remains the same all the time. Yeah, right. that is the power of the genealogy, right? Because it, it, in a part, we're talking about how groups are related to these soci, I think. But um, I want to ask Roger just a quick question. The word, um, I, I cannot do a French accent. Resentment, yes. Does that just mean the feeling of resenting? Just give me one sec. I'll give you like uh, the the correct definition. So, um, resentment. Wait, I'm just gonna. While oh, you're looking for that, I ask because that seems to be the that that is the inscription in this um in this society, okay. right? So in. In the dictionary, in the French dictionary, it says the impression linked to the manner that we perceive something or a situation. So it's a perception. So it's into affects. It's pre-rational and pre-consciousness. So basically, um, le, 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 and it links to ressentiment. It's something that you're lingering. You know, it's something that is like it's a sensation. It's a state of being. You know, when we talk about ressenti, we're more into an ontological kind of uh, verbiage than what we, uh, you know, when we talk about actions, for example. Because we're not into like the the rational individual, you know, we're into the feeling individual. And the feeling individual, it's not something that we take into our consciousness. Okay, so this is a little bit more bound up in cathetsis then. And I'm going to uh, push us through because I really don't want to have two paragraphs left over. (laughs) So I'm going to push us through the next paragraph, and then I think we spend some time chatting. I'm going to let this recording go long. We're going to go a little longer than normal. But I I really think um, it's worth us spending the time finishing. The founders of empires caused everything to pass into a latent state. They invented vengeance and incited resentment, that counter-vengeance, and yet Nietzsche says about them what he has already said about the primitive system. It was not in their midst that bad conscience, this ugly growth, Oedipus, took root and began to grow. It is simply that one more step had been taken in that direction. Oedipus, bad conscience, interiority, they made it possible. 
What does Nietzsche mean, this man who dragged Caesar along with him as a despotic signifier, along with its two signifieds, his sister and his mother, and who felt their weight grow heavier as he drew nearer to madness? It is true that Oedipus begins its cellular, ovular migration in the system of imperial representation. From being at first the displaced representative desire, it becomes the repressing representation itself. The impossible has become possible. The unoccupied limit now finds itself occupied by the despot. Oedipus has received its name, the club-footed despot committing double incest through overcoating, with his sister and his mother as body representations subjected to verbal representation. Moreover, Oedipus is in the process of establishing each of the formal operations that will make it all possible. The extrapolation of a detached object, the double bind of overcoating or royal incest, the biunivocalization application and linearization of the chain between masters and slaves, the introduction of the law into desire and of desire into the law, the terrible latency with its afterwards or after the event. All the parts of the five paralogisms thus seem to be ready. But we are still not very far from the psychoanalytic Oedipus. And the Hellenists are right to not grasp clearly the story that psychoanalysis is trying at all costs to tell them. It is indeed the story of desire and its sexual history. There is no other. But here are all the parts figure as cogs and wheels in the state machine. Desire is by no means an interplay between a son, a mother, and a father. Desire institutes a libidinal investment of a state machine that overcodes the territorial machine and, with an additional turn of the screw, Presses desiring machines. Incest derives from this investment, and not the reverse. At first it brings into play only the despot, sister and the mother. It is the overcoding and repressing representation. The father intervenes only as the representative of the old territorial machine, but the sister is the representative of the new alliance, and the mother is the representative of direct filiation. Father and son are not yet born. A-H? Is that in just my text? Just in my PDF? What is Not in French. Um, my, mine continues. All sexuality. Forms. All. It's supposed to be the word all. That's a, that's a shitty text reader. Uh, all sexuality functions in terms of the conjoined operations of machines. Their internecine struggle, their superposition, their interlocking arrangements. Let us marvel once again at Freud's account of Oedipus. In Moses and Monotheism, he indeed surmises that latency is a state affair, but then latency must not succeed the Oedipus complex, marking the complex's repression or even its suppression. It must result from the repressing action of the incestuous representation, which is not yet by any means a complex in the sense of repressed desire, since on the contrary the representation exercises its repressive action on desire itself. The Oedipus complex, as it is called by psychoanalysis, will be born of latency, after latency, and it signifies the return of the repressed under conditions that disfigure, displace, and even decode desire. The Oedipus complex appears only after latency, and when Freud recognizes two phases separated by latency, it is only the second phase that merits the complex's name, while the first expresses only its parts and wheels functioning from a completely different viewpoint in a completely different organization. There we see the mania of psychoanalysis with all its paralogisms. It presents as a resolution or an attempted resolution of the complex what is rather 
the latter's definitive establishment or its interior installation, and it presents as the complex what is still the complex's opposite. What will be necessary in order for Oedipus to become the Oedipus, the Oedipus complex? Many things, in fact. Those things that Nietzsche partially grasped in the evolution of the infinite debt. Um, I actually do want to stop here. If someone wants to deconstruct a bit of that paragraph, that would be great. I'll be right back. Anyone, please, any thoughts? Uh, so maybe can we go over what they mean by the word latency? Because it seems to have a double meaning, right? Where uh, there's a sort of latency in a, in a Freudian term and a latency in the, in the sort of political term that they're using it. Well, when you're latent, it's... Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't kind of like a sort of a uh, sort of lethargence, right? Like what it seems to me is they're talking about like the preservation of the status quo, such that even like even when rebellions occur, it's about taking control of the latent status quo. I suppose the Freudian sense would be like, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's part of the psychosexual development, um, isn't it? Um, Oral, anal, latent, phallic, genital. Is it phallic, genital? Phallic, latent, genital, genital, I think it is. Oh, I'm going to have to look it up. It is oral, anal, phallic, latent, and then genital. Okay. So latent is little or no sexual motivation present. Yeah, that's the part of your life, if I remember correctly, where you're basically like... I mean, I think about it in terms of like high school or even like when you're starting out your career right and you're just too busy for uh, sexuality okay so that makes so so that makes sense um that then that the sort of latency is the sort of rule of law um keeping desire from its sort of revolutionary actualization yeah because oh go ahead I was just going to re-say the same thing again, where like the machines are there, the desiring machines are there. They're just kind of latent. They're, they're latent in the sense that there's um, a suspension. There's like a moment of inactivity, and only through this moment of inactivity that a contradiction can arise and uh, make possible a new arrangement. Yes, and to that point, they're sitting underneath the representation, right? Yes. So it's not something, it's something that is there, you know? It's, it's like what you have on your desk, and they, can, they need to be there to be coming together, you know? Because if they're not there, they're not going to produce anything. So, but they need, uh, there's, um, yeah, maybe that would go too far with that example, but... Um, it's it's the moment of inactivity, but of presence at the same time. It's something that is present, but not represented. Yeah, it's part of the repression, right? Because the, the desiring production, the desiring machines, and the syntheses are occurring. But the problem with the paralogism, right, is that all this stuff is basically, um, you know, is subsumed. Yeah, or well, that's a good word. Um, it's hidden. 
Okay, that clears it up for me. Uh, you gotta love it when they do that like dual meaning thing where <laughs> it means one thing in one context and another thing in another context, but actually kind of means the same thing in both contexts. <laughs> uh, it it made sense too because like if where they're bringing an Oedipus here, right? Oedipus, as I understand at least the basic idea, is someone who has this problem of latency. Where you know how do you how do you go about attacking the father and how do you go about um, going after the mother, right? It's latent in that sense of like, is sort of um, this movement, but it's also latent in the sense of like, at least the idea is that it's part of the, the investment that you're actively investing into these two things. And if I want to add something, um, I just looked it up on Google and I found the text in French and they're referring to the concept of latency. So it's in French. It's in La Planche and Pontalis in the vocabulary of psychoanalysis from 1967. Um, and what they say is that the latency of Deleuze and Guattari is a historic, phenomen a historic and social phenomenon which the relation uh, with the period of late the Freudian latency which is a phenomenon uh, individual and psychic phenomenon that goes from the decline of the six the infantile sexuality until the beginning of puberty and which marks um, a stop in time into the evolution of sexuality and which correspond to an in intensification of uh, refoulement. Refoulement, would, what's, what's the, the word in English for refoulement? We, we just wrote it. It's a, I don't know, we could see this after. Um, which is uh, conjugated with the actions of social formation and which can in return provoke uh, a complete interrup interruption into the sexual life. So, you know, it's this moment, the in-between moment. That's what I was talking about earlier, of repression. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, so basically it's something, it's a stop that can intensify repression. And worth going now into the final paragraph of this section. Sorry to interrupt, but it's worth uh, the timing. The Oedipal cell. So, thank you for your repression. Yes, I will do what I can. The Oedipal cell will have to complete its migration. It must no longer be content to pass from the state of the displaced represented to that of repressing representation. Rather, from being the repressing representation, it will have to finally become the representative of desire itself. And it must become the latter by virtue of being the displaced represented. The debt must not only become an infinite debt. It will have to be internalized and spiritualized as an infinite debt. Christianity and what follows. The father and the son will have to take form, that is, the royal triad must masculinize itself, and this must occur as a direct consequence of the infinite debt that is now internalized. Oedipus the despot will have to be replaced by Oedipuses as subjects, Oedipuses as subjugated individuals, Oedipuses as fathers, and Oedipuses as sons. All the formal operations will have to be resumed within a decoded social field and must reverberate in the pure and private element of interiority, of interior reproduction. The apparatus of social repression, psychic repression, will have to undergo a complete reorganization. Hence desire, having completed its migration, will have to experience this extreme affliction of being turned against itself. 
The turning back against itself, bad conscience, the guilt that attaches it to the most decoded of social fields, as well as to the sickest interiority. The trap for desire, its ugly growth. So long as the history of desire does not experience this outcome, Oedipus haunts all societies, but is the nightmare of something that has still not happened to them. Its hour has not come. And isn't this the strength of Lacan, to have saved psychoanalysis from the frenzied Oedipalization to which it was linking its fate, to have brought about this salvation even at the price of a regression? And even though it meant the unconscious would be kept under the weight of the despotic apparatus, that it would be reinterpreted starting from this apparatus. The law and the signifier, phallus and castration, yes. Oedipus, no. The despotic age of the unconscious. <sighs> and I think with that, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to dip out because we've passed two o'clock and I've got other things to go on to. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, let me just do my little outro here and then you guys can uh, discuss, but I'm going to say thank you to the stream. Thank you to everyone. Thanks, Bill, of course, for your support. And thank all of you for joining. Uh, so finally getting through this section and we will uh, be moving on to section eight, the Orstadt.